There we go. All right. I'm here with Mr. Do you like Sam or Samuel? Either one's fine. All right. Sam Urban, the illegitimate scholar. I saw that you were on with my buddy Adam Nutter. So yeah, I haven't had a chance to yeah. listen to that one. Yeah. But, but yeah, yeah, I mean, we're probably going to talk about a lot of similar stuff depending on what direction you want to take it. But, you know, this is something I've talked about a, a number of times already. Well, uh, let's uh, give give my audience a little bit of a background of who you are, where you come from, and uh, how you got, I guess, quote unquote, red pilled. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I uh, you know maybe maybe yellow pilled more than red pilled. I'm, I'm definitely uh, <laughs> I, I'd identify as a libertarian more than anything else. But that's all right. um, so I'm from Connecticut, up here in New England. What was that? I say you're forgiven. Yeah, thank you. um yeah so i i moved around uh quite a lot as a kid mostly connecticut and north carolina um spent two years in indonesia when i was younger which um uh with my dad's job brought him out there and that was you know that was different that was cool it was a different experience it's definitely influenced the way i think about things um right out of high school four years in the marine corps um got out from the marine corps uh did four years in college um I really loved academics, took classes in the summer, you know, GI bills paying for it, give me a stipend. So I just kept taking classes. So I got degrees in history, anthropology and education while I was there. Um, and uh, I was in a teaching program um, and I decided it wasn't right for me. You know, I saw a lot of the problems in the education, uh, especially I was preparing to be a public education teacher. Mm. And uh, so I quit. Um, so I quit and I'm here, you know, a few years on, uh, and I, I started this podcast to talk about history and anthropology for people that don't trust the mainstream narrative, um, using, you know, both the methods that they use. So using like all the, uh, using all the, the academic sources and, and polls and everything, as well as using other types of sources. You know, I, I, I like to include things like, uh, indigenous knowledge, um, and Mm -hmm. like just common sense um which you know is one that people talk about a lot but i think it's it can't be overstated how important common sense is especially when you're dealing with some of the uh some of the opinions that are created through through uh education year after year after year when things build on each other um and when it's kind of sometimes it's obvious that something's screwed up but when you're in that education uh, when you're in school and universities they you know, with enough papers and the right people saying it, they could convince you that trees are orange. What was uh, black? What was the uh, what was the real turning point for you? When did the switch get flipped for you? Um, it definitely happened over time. Uh, you know, I, I'm a guy who's always had opinions that are kind of out there. Um, and I think the the first major time that I uh, that I saw something. Um, that was like, wait, like, this is, this is really weird was that, you know, I, I taken history and anthropology classes, but taking the education classes, my, my views were pretty welcome in the history and and the anthropology classes. You know, I don't have like extreme, I I wouldn't say I have that much of extreme views. Um, but I was, uh, I was accused of anti-Semitism in one of my education classes because I took the position that we don't talk about, um, uh, the genocide of Native Americans or of like personal example, like me living in Indonesia when I was younger, the genocide of the Cambodians, which is something that was very personal to me because I, I spent like, I saw the place that where it happened at when I was like 10 years old. And that, that was always a question for me, which 
is what like and i did an episode on this recently like why do we care about certain genocides over others but you know just the fact that my professor took it took me and what i had said as questioning the genocide which is absolutely not what i was doing and not something that i do but when this happened and i realized that he was using um his academic authority and his position over me to like really try to discredit me and um you know, he was very antagonistic to me before then and after then even more. And, you know, I, I started looking into more things mm-hmm. and, and realizing like how power is organized and how people like him use these institutions, um, you know, to to expand their their own views. And at the end of the day, they they really don't care about Native American genocide. Yeah, I think it was I heard something <clears throat> here recently where they were quoting I think they were quoting Gandhi. Hmm. I'm so bad at like my, my timelines of history. I could have the, the wrong person, but they were quoting a a famous person who, who was talking about the, the Holocaust Hmm. and, and the genocide of the Jews. And, and he, I want to say it was Gandhi, man. It's really like stuck in my head that it was Gandhi. And he had said that, that what we can learn from the 5 million Jews that were, were killed in the Holocaust. And I was like, it caught my attention that he said 5 million. Cause I was like, right there in modern society, you're called a Holocaust denier. Yeah. Yeah. Because your number is different than the, you know, admissible number. And I was, I was thinking about that and I was like, that is so odd that, Mm -hmm. that nobody, like that it's it's so you're you're so required to be within this narrative that yeah. if you're like yeah it was five million nine hundred ninety nine thousand jews and, and not six million like right. you gotta like that six is very important to these people yeah so this the the number that does there is something about that coinciding with like um a religious uh, like some very conservative Jewish uh, religious thing from prior to the Holocaust. So it, it's very, the 6 million number is very important, but it's not just that. I mean, with any other historical event, an estimate of large amounts of deaths is fine. But for some reason, yes, with that one, you have to be right on the number. You can't question it at all. Um, and that's not the only thing. There's other ones. Like there, there's other things that you really can't question. Um, and I like, I, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but I mean, besides like, you know, the type of like gender theory stuff, that stuff is can't question vaccines. Right, right, right. So I was thinking historically, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's racist to say that the, the Wuhan lab in Wuhan, China produced the Wuhan novel coronavirus. Right. Um, Yeah. All right. Well, uh, you, you brought up gender, like, so like the two spirit thing. There's like this debate yeah. about this whole two spirit thing. And you're like, no, this was, this was an at- invention like in the eighties or in the seventies or something like that. It never existed prior to that. Yeah. So I'm not like, I'm not super clear. I've heard some stuff about that, about two spirit, but like the, it, and so I have a degree in anthropology. That's the study of humans. Um, and mm. cultural anthropology is like what I do. And um, there, there are in the past, there are, other genders besides man and woman um the thing with with those is that in all the cases um 
they serve some sort of purpose to the society. So like there, there are cases like there's situations um, where in like Albania in the past um, they had like a patriarchal system where a man has to be in charge of like a whole family. Um, like there's a man in, in charge who's the patriarch of the whole family of like all like 70, 80 people or however many are in the extended family. And there are situations where in their clan violence, like the entire male line of a family is killed. And in those cases, they have this gender, this, this other gender where a woman can adopt male mannerisms and male clothing, and she can become the patriarch of the family. And that's a way of getting around that rule. Mm. But in, in cases like that, and I, I could discuss a few others, there's always some sort of uh, societal purpose to creating that, that other gender. It, it always serves the culture because, you know, generally what happens with culture is that cultures are created in a way that serves the, the human and the physical environment that people live in. Mm. So in their culture, they needed this other gender so that this woman could, uh, could assume the role of a patriarch and they needed to find a way that that fit into their culture. Um, whereas today, and you know, I, I'm of the mind that I will call somebody, whatever pronouns they want to be called, I I'll do it. Um, but I, I, I have, there is a difference with, um, the gender stuff that we have today, because it doesn't seem like it's been created in a sense to help the culture. If anything, it's been created to harm it. Um, and there's no, like, there's no, like I'm sure you've seen what is a woman, there's no shared understanding within a culture of what these terms really mean and what kind of roles they have. And, and that's really the difference. Well, all right. So this, this, you just struck a chord with me um, mm-hmm. and, and made me remember something. I was listening to Jonathan Pajot a few weeks ago. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with him, mm-hmm. um, but uh, really interesting guy. He's an iconographer, um, very, um, orthodox in his in the religious sense and um he was talking about the story of um the pharaoh killing the the uh firstborn the the sons of is israel right mm-hmm. and killing all the men and because it was a patriarchal society right because the the they adhered even as slaves they adhered to a, a patriarch a patriarchal authority mm-hmm. like by killing the men you instill you're creating a, a spirit of chaos within that culture right mm-hmm. because you didn't have that that hierarchy that natural hierarchy that you're culturally uh adhere to yeah and yeah. when i look at like the gender whatever you call whatever's happening today mm-hmm. I, I still think it's just delusion and insanity and and that's just my personal opinion and take that for what it's worth. Mm-hmm. What what I do see is there's this spirit of chaos that's being injected into our society. Yeah. Yeah, I know I I I I totally agree with you. And as you know, I I I like to I try to make a distinction for me um, between like what's going on at a societal level and like on the individual level, on the individual level, you know, I'm a, I'm a young millennial. I I know people that identify in this way and I'm as respectful as possible to them. Um, you know, in, uh, as individuals, how they want, but at the same time, I, 
I can't not discuss the macro effect of something. Yeah, and I think I should be, just to be clear, when I look at these things, I look at it from the macro. I don't look at these individual people. I don't really care, like, what they want. And, like, because, I'm, you know, I'm 40 years old. My parents raised me saying, life isn't fair. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. So whenever I look at the individual, I'm kind of like, okay, yeah, all right. But yeah. what does the whole picture mean? What does all of this mean? Right. Like, what all these pieces meet somewhere and form some sort of uh, picture for us? And and all I see developing is chaos and and yeah. destruction. Well, I mean the the very like you know the the idea of being transgender of switching genders. Um, it 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 like that being what it is when I saw the the documentary, Matt Walsh's what is a woman like it, mm. it like it, the, the thing that blew my mind is that, and, and I had like an epiphany that I couldn't believe that I hadn't realized it before, but like the reason people can't answer what is a woman without saying somebody who identifies as a woman is because there's no shared understanding of what a woman is because the, the minute you, you put a definition on what a man is and on what a woman is, you're, um, you're excluding somebody, right? So like, even if it only, if, even if it goes to include 99% of people that would call themselves men, it doesn't include that 1%. So it's exclusionary in a certain way. And I think that our culture today, it requires there to be 100% inclusion. And if there's 100% inclusion, that means that any term like this, where you identify somebody as a man or a woman or whatever, if it deals with their personal identity and you can't question it, then that means that all of these things become meaningless. Where do where do you think that came from? Because I've heard people like uh, like like say that's like postmodernist. It, it it is in some aspect very relativistic, right? yeah. And and so where do where do where is the roots of that idea? I that is an incredibly good question that I don't have a simple answer to. So that's the first thing. I mean, I I can speculate right now, but. Mm-hmm there might be a good answer if you were able to do the digging in the right direction. It, it seems to me that like, you know, I'm, I'm from the, uh, the participation trophy generation, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, that's me, you know, I was, yeah, yeah. um, Hel- helicopter parents and all that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's my generation. And like, you know, it, it, it became a cliche like a decade ago talking about participation trophies, but I really think that the participation trophy is um an incredible like it, it is it it should be talked about a lot more it, it people roll their eyes but like it's detrimental to the to the foundations yeah. of success right it's and it's symbolic of a larger problem in the society what do you think that what do you think it symbolizes um i i think that like having participation trophies symbolizes that it doesn't matter like it doesn't matter what you're doing as long as you're participating. And, you know, that's sometimes true, but a society that doesn't concentrate on the end result, it just concentrates on the idea that you were a part of it is inevitably not incentivizing people to try harder. And it's not incentivizing people to that they need to get to an end. And I think that and by end, I mean, like, you know, in this case, it's like winning a soccer or a football game. Mm-hmm. But in in the case of a society, you know, 
you could not have the attitude of participation trophies in the 1700s or we'll say 1600s in Connecticut because every day you're fighting in annihilation war. Not every day, but there are times when you're fighting in an annihilation war with local Native Americans. Well, so, it, or you're starving to death. Right, right, and, right. And just right, participating exactly. doesn't Americans. mean, yeah. yeah, just participating in the activities does not right. mean you're going to survive. If you're living in a society where if you don't go out in the rain and harvest your grain before the rain ruins your harvest, then you're, you and your family are going to die. Participation does not matter in that case. You and everything that you love will be destroyed. But in a country in the 1990s into the 2000s, when, you know, it's okay, it's fine. If you don't, you know, if you don't, if you don't like accomplish something, like it's okay to just participate, just go out there and have fun and try your best. That's great. But that doesn't, that like, you shouldn't, but giving someone a ribbon for participating in that teaches them that all they have to do is show up. And that's mm-hmm. just not true. But if you're living in a society where it is true that all you have to do is show up and you can basically get a nothing job like we have today, there's been books written about nothing jobs yeah. when it doesn't really matter what you produce because your society is is based on like, you know, the Federal Reserve and American uh, Empire being pushed out overseas and, and you're living off of the um, off of like the 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 things that have been created by this giant capitalist system, then yes, it's a situation where it really doesn't matter because you're not at risk of dying because, mm. you know, you can, it's easy to get food. We have an, a surplus of calories and all the, all these things. So it's, it's, it's symbolic of the, um, the times that we live in and how easy our lives are to live, but that's all artificial, right? I was, um, I, I just recorded, right before we got on here with uh my friend Courtney Turner. I don't know mm-hmm. if you know Cor- the Courtney Turner podcast. She's re- very good. Okay. You should definitely check her out. And I will write um, it down. Yeah, and um we were we we're talking about 15 minute cities and just the movement of the transhumanist movement, the geo uh geofencing, all these things. And something clicked within me and as the conversation progressed, it, it kind of leads into some of what we're talking about here with the participation trophies. So let me run this by you. Let me just get your, your mm-hmm. feel on this because you've studied like hu- the human species, the cultures yeah. and the way these things operate. So I brought up with her, the Jordan Peterson phenomenon. And I was like, it doesn't matter what you think of Jordan Peterson as a person, as an individual, it does not matter. What I learned watching the Jordan Peterson phenomenon is there is a subsection of young men who want nothing more than to grab responsibility and feel that fulfillment of responsibility. And the participation trophy steals that from people. You don't have that fulfillment of accomplishing anything. I was, I was telling her from a man's perspective, I, I, I live on nine acres. I have greenhouses. I have chickens. I build chicken coops and stuff for my chickens. Like it's not, I I don't mind the process of building it. Right. I I enjoy it to a degree, but there's nothing more, more fulfilling than stepping back and seeing a job well done and having my wife come pat me on the back and go, we wouldn't have this if you didn't do it. 
you know, and yeah. it, there's something about that accomplishment, reaching that goal, like that higher level, stepping yeah. up your game a little bit that Jordan Peterson tapped into this on mm-hmm. a cultural level, especially with young men. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I, and I, I, fully I really, yeah. I really feel like when we're talking about participation trophies, we're talking about the antithesis of that. Yeah. A hundred percent. I no, I fully agree. And, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I read that book, uh, what 12 rules for life. I thought it was incredible. You know, I thought that was, a, it was a great book. Um, and I, I fully agree that that's like, but that is what, like when you create a culture where, you know, you're told that gender roles are bad. And, you know, I'm not saying that I think women need to be in the kitchen. I don't. I'm not saying that men need to be out like chopping wood and everything. But what I am saying is that, you know, human beings, uh, you know, I, I love anthropology. To me, human beings are a type of animal. We're mammals, right? You know, there is a sexual dichotomy in all mammals. And that is in both our, um, that's in our DNA, that's in our brains and um it and that plays out into the way that humans are um in the way that humans act in their cultures and this goes back to what i was talking about before where in if you're in a culture where you have to make food to survive like and you barely have enough and there's a chance of you starving you can't afford to put somebody who might not be the most efficient at the task that they're doing on a certain task. So it wouldn't make any sense for uh, the men to do uh, the gathering. If you're a hunter gatherer society, it doesn't make any sense for men to do the gathering and for women to, to do the hunting because men are more efficient at hunting than women and women are more efficient at gathering than men. Hmm. There are things in, in our brains, like for example, women, like men are more likely to be colorblind. Women can't be colorblind. Because if a woman was colorblind in early human civilization, she couldn't tell the difference between berries and she'd be eating and feeding people poisonous berries. Right. So men were able to be colorblind because being colorblind, those traits were not destroyed from their brains over time because being colorblind didn't really affect how they mm-hmm. were able to um, to enact in their society. So when you live in a society where these standards don't matter, it allows for these standards to be eroded and not everybody has to be at their peak efficiency, which is fine. But at the same time today, our modern brains are the same modern brains that anatomically modern humans have been found as far back as 300,000 years. They keep finding older ones, Mm. right? Like even almost every few years, archeologists find a new older one. The last one I know about is 300,000 years ago. It was in, I think a year ago, they found one a year or two ago. Mm Mm-hmm. We still have those brains. We still have those things in our brains. So what I'm not saying is that all men are the same and all women are the same, but understanding that you're a man and understanding your biology or that you're a woman and understanding how you as an individual have other traits that might that might move you along this spectrum, it helps you to understand who you are and what makes you feel purposeful. You know, and and I would say that in a lot of ways, I'm a very traditional man. I do like to work outside. I like to build things. I like to, you know, build shelves, workbenches, remodeling my house. I like to do all these things. They make me feel good. I also like to cook and that's fine. Like that's another thing that I like to do, which they wouldn't call traditionally man. But, you know, you be selective with some of the things that you want to do. But understand that because there's overlapping bell curves, men are going to be more likely to do certain things. Men are going or women are going to be more likely to do certain things. And with Jordan Peterson, Jordan Peterson taps into this idea that 
you he he taps into the idea that obviously you should have responsibility and um it it does make you feel better and like clean your room obviously like he he promotes actions that then lead to you living a better and more fulfilled life for a lot of people not just men but also women because i i think it's universal i know plenty of women who have learned a lot from jordan peterson hmm. yeah did i answer your question yeah no you did you okay. did. We're going, we're going right down the path. I want to go down. So we're, awesome. we're all good. Fantastic. So, <clears throat> all right. So you're touching on, on the difference between men and women, the way that our brains interact with the world. And this, this leads us into the classroom, which we eventually wanted to get into. I, uh, when you and I were emailing, I brought up to you, John Taylor Gatto. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he used to do, was he would take like his problem students, which seemed to be always be males that were having issues sitting still in a classroom for eight hours and focusing on the front of the class. And they were, they were wanting to be active. Mm -hmm. And what he would do is he would take them and he would, he would find a tradesman that would bring that child along for the school day and, and, let that child ride along. So he had truck, some kids that rode with truck drivers, some kids that went and helped people on construction sites and this, that, and the other. And he would grade them in class, in class as if they had attended class, but he was sending them off to do these things and learn these trades off on the side. And one of the things I asked Richard Grove when I interviewed him about uh, John Taylor Gatto, I was like, I wonder, I want to hear back from these kids and how, that experience, that learning experience changed their life and moved them in a different direction. There's something about the classroom that is not designed for men. And we can see this drastically in, in the, in the GPA of males going through school and how that it's, there's this constant decline of of a male GPA compared to feminine uh, female GPA and how women are basically the majority of the students in university because it does not adhere itself to the the biological tendencies of men yeah yeah and that's that's true um it's uh, over the last few years it's it's gotten worse that um it's like 55 about 55% of students at universities are, are women. Yeah. Um, (laughs) yeah. So it's, it's, again, it's like, it's one of the, it's, it's that overlapping bell curve, right? It's like, there are, there are women who or girls, I should say that, that have trouble in, in school for that same reason. And there are boys that do just fine. You know, I, I was one of those boys that couldn't sit still. I still can't sit still. I'm sitting down in, in my, my spot right now, but I got a walking treadmill desk over there. That's where I do most of my work. When I record, I sit down, but you know, it's. And you still haven't been still one second since we started talking. Absolutely. Like it's never have been in 28 years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's (laughs) always moving around. So it's like, and that is more likely to be, uh, for, uh, for boys and, so that that brings me we can go back and if you want to go back in time and talk about what happened in the early 1900s that maybe created uh, schools the way that they are right now. Well, we can't. Yeah, let's do that. Let's get into that. And that's one of the interesting things. Now, I, I, I watched 
uh, one of your more, more recent episodes where you did bring up Prussia in the episode. And the interesting yeah. thing about Prussia, I don't know if you ran into this whenever you're, you were doing your, um, your research, but the, the way that the Prussian education system was created was Prussia was having an issue with military men running from battle. And so they had to figure out how do we instill in them that they should die for the country. So they created the school system in order to manufacture soldiers. Yeah. And that's what this is for. It is an assembly line to push out good little citizens to act in adherence to the state. Right. So I, I didn't do a lot of research on uh, the Prussian model. Um, the, the stuff I did research on was on the, uh, the next shift that happened in the early 1900s. They started right. on the Prussian model in the 1830s. But absolutely, this Prussian model... Was that the Chicago school that you're talking about in the 1800s? Um, I don't know. No. I, I'm talking about... Uh, what, what, what I did the most research on was the uh, General Education Board of John D. Rockefeller and okay. Andrew Carnegie's Carnegie Foundation. Gotcha. gotcha. I, um, I, I know I've heard of that before, but I, I don't remember um, that specifically. But yeah, so the, the Prussian model, it comes out of this time of nationalism when obviously they're, they're getting the Prussians and uh, Prussia becomes Germany. I know you know that, but just mm-hmm. so everyone knows. Prussia unifies with other German states, become Germany. Um, and they... Uh, and, and our education system, the first one that was in the entire country in the United States was this Prussian model, um, that popped up in the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s. But what happens, uh, is a little bit later, um, in the early 1900s for similar reasons, because education, like all things that are socially constructed, created by governments or created in more primitive societies from the bottom up they are culturally informed. So they work in, they, they either serve a need or they come out of like the human and the physical environment. So what happens in the 1900s is that like you were describing this issue where uh, the Prussians, they had men running in battle of Carnegie and Rockefeller and also Ford, but I have quotes mostly from uh, Rockefeller. Mm. They, they saw a problem that these people like in new England, where I live, they, they did have public schools. They had them since like the 1600s, but it wasn't countrywide. You know, people were going to school until like sixth grade in a lot of other parts of the country. A lot of them were farmers, you know, as a lot of people were in the 1800s and the people working in educate in uh, agriculture kept dropping during that time. And what Carnegie and Ford and Rockefeller found was that these people were not really inclined to work at their factories. These were rural people who didn't go through school. So what happens is that they design the new school system and they expand between 1890 when only 10% of 14 to 17 year olds attended high school. And these were mostly people who would become professionals. They were going to university after that. Only 10% of 14 to 17 year olds went to high school in 1890. By 1940, it's 70%. They are strictly in charge and they are to blame for creating mandatory schooling in the US and making universal high school, which they present as a good thing. But I have quotes that essentially prove that they did this to create docile factory workers who were more inclined to work in their factories. 
Yeah. Um, so would you like to hear one? Yeah, go ahead, man. Yeah. John D. Rockefeller himself said, I don't want a nation of workers or I don't want a nation of thinkers. I want a nation of workers. Um, he said that in like 1909. Um, Reverend Frederick T. Gates, business advisor to John D. Rockefeller Sr., he ran the General Education Board, which uh, was an organization created with a million dollars in 1902 money, which would later be funded to the tune of billions of dollars of Rockefeller's money. This is a tax-exempt organization that, by name, it went out to create educational opportunities in the U.S., but what it really did was fund schools in order to use the money um, as essentially almost blackmail to force the schools to adhere to teach what and how they wanted things to be teach to be taught. So 1902, this organization, the General Education Board, it's run by this guy, Reverend Frederick T. Gates. And he says in 1913, in writing, uh, in documents of this organization, in our dreams, in our dream, we have limitless resources and the people yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hand. The present educational conventions fade from our minds and unhampered by tradition, we work our own goodwill upon a grateful and responsive rural folk. We shall not try to make these people or any of their children into philosophers or men of learning or of science. We are not to raise up among them authors, orators, poets, or men of letters. We shall not search for embryo great artists, painters, musicians, nor will we cherish even the humbler ambition to raise up from among them lawyers, doctors, preachers, statesmen of whom we now have ample supply. And that's the guy who ran fully in charge of the organization that funded uh, schools, like as in elementary, middle, junior high, high schools. Uh, funded teacher colleges and universities uh, in such a way that essentially you had to take their money or you would just go away because they were funding everyone else so much um, and uh, and lobbied the government and labor unions to change their policies. So, and in this process of, of developing this, they not only enslaved the students uh, throughout their lives, but they enslaved generations to this system, to yeah. this institution that they had created. And people, people view the institutions of the federal government, like the department of education, um, the EPA, all of these things, they, they view them in a religious framework as if without these things, without the government paternally looking over us and taking care of us, we could not accomplish these things otherwise. And that, that is a, a huge mistake. And it is, it's a corner we've been painted in. And uh, it makes you wonder, like, I know that now, there have been a lot of people that have overstepped their bounds and have created enough of a situation in which parents are uncomfortable, especially with like this whole drag queen story hour type stuff mm -hmm. that parents are starting to question the situation. So maybe they're more, more open to the suggestion of, of the history of schooling 
But I know for years, yeah. like whenever I was talking about this just a couple of years ago, people would be like, no, that's not, that's not real. Like, yeah. why would, why would you say something like that? What are you supposed to do without public education? Do you not want yeah. your kids to be educated? And it's like, without the existence of the government doing these things, mm-hmm. then these things cannot be done. And that, that is, that is a huge propaganda tool that the government has on their side when it comes to uh, programs like education. A hundred percent. I mean, yeah, that's, it's a hundred percent. I, I, I have a, a list of other quotes, but one of them uh, there's, there's a report called the Dodd report from 1953. And uh, for memory, I'll, I'll paraphrase, I'll paraphrase, but um, actually, let me just pull it out. Actually, no, I don't even have to go that far forward. Um, Elwood P. Coverley, uh, who was Stanford's Dean of Education in 1909. Mm-hmm. Um, so this Stanford is one of the best teaching schools in the country. It was back then. It still is today. Um, he said he was in charge of education in 1909. This is at the time when these things are changing. He said each year the child is coming to belong more to the state and less and less to the parent. And then in 1953, there was a... Um, there was a uh, report done. It was a congressional inquiry into the uh, influence of organizations like the Carnegie Foundation and the Rockefeller and the General Education Board. And uh, they found, and this is in a Senate or a Congress report from 1953, they found that these organizations had done this, directing education in the United States towards an international viewpoint and discrediting the traditions to which it formerly had been dedicated decreasing the dependency of education upon the resources of the local community and freeing it from many of the natural safeguards inherent in this American tradition, changing both school and college curricula to the point where they sometimes denied the principles underlying underlying the American way of life. And this is the one I was thinking of. And most importantly, financing experiments designed to determine the most effective means by which education could be pressed into service of a political nature. So, of course, yeah, mandatory schooling is necessary when you want almost the entire population to be taught in the method of education that you as the government and in coalition with in crony capitalism with the large capitalists like Rockefeller capitalists in the sense that they are the ones with the capital, not capitalists and people who hold that ideology. Um, They are, you know, controlling the narrative and controlling the way in which people talk about information, which leads to their authority not being questioned in any significant way. Yeah, it was, uh, I believe it was um, William Casey, who was the CIA director under Ronald Reagan, who had said, we know that our disinformation campaign is complete when everything the American people believe is false. And so um, when when I look at, See, here, here's here's where kind of I differ from a lot of people, the way I view these things. When I look at the education system and, and the institutionalization of the education system, I look at it the exact same way I would look at Operation Mockingbird or MKUltra, right? So this is, this is a, a path in which they can learn to control people's minds. Mm-hmm. And it's a Petri dish that they are experimenting on your children. And your, your, your children are just a, a genome. If you, if you read, which is something I, I, I do a lot, if you read the writings of the elites, they speak about citizens, about um, the normal everyday person as, as animals, um, 
Klaus Schwab and you, Yuval Noah Harari specifically classify the citizen as little more than a house trained pet. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah. if you know, going into this, that you were pushing your children into a system run by people that look at your child as little better than a house trained pet, then you will at least at the very least pay attention to what they are learning. And unfortunately for the powers that be COVID forced us into a situation where parents were actually having to pay more attention to the, the learning experiment that was going on with their child's mind. And I don't think they thought it would backfire in the way that it did. Yeah. I mean, you're seeing school choice being passed in a bunch of red States um, right now. I hope it starts to spread to the blue, but um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. You know, I generally am not very, I'm generally not very uh, optimistic, I guess, um, about our ability to to go up against a um, to go up against like an authoritarian government, especially with them and also giant corporations that they're in bed with hiring the best psychologists in the world. But, you know, they're not they don't know everything. So we'll see. Well, a big problem that. um that that modern people fall into uh in 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 which which leads to uh, a high amount of pessimism is they don't understand they don't see a path to beating them to to beating the system mm-hmm. right they see this system as as laid out before them it's the system that you grew up in it's the system i grew up in it's been it's been constantly moving in one direction yeah. and it, and it, and it feels hopeless to move it back the other direction. All right. Yeah. What, what would be the strategy in order to move that system back in another, in the, in the opposite direction to push it back in the opposite direction? Are you um, in the opposite direction? Are you talking about like, with authoritarianism specifically yeah, move yeah. it away from the authoritarian kind of brainwash model that we live in today. How would you do, how would you go about doing that? Yeah. So, you know, I view it kind of as a feedback loop. That's um, that you, the culture, uh, a culture, culture being the ways that people interact with the world. It's, it's a combination of uh, religion, ideology, um, all, all, all kinds of ways of thinking like, the culture forms around like the way that people interact with the world and the way that people interact world with the world forms around the culture. So what I see right now, um, and honestly, like, like a lot of Liberty minded individuals seeing the create, like what was accepted during the COVID lockdown mm-hmm. was very disheartening. Like mm-hmm. I, I didn't think that, a country like Australia would shut down the way that it did and be locking people in hotels. And, you know, I didn't think that something like that would happen. I didn't think that Justin Trudeau, the prime minister of Canada right there was going to be like locking people out of their bank accounts. 
I, I didn't think that Americans would allow themselves to be locked down the way that they did and, and have their businesses destroyed while large corporations in, increase their profits to ever-increasing sizes. I didn't think any of that would happen. Um, but at the same time, there's also lagging, there's like lagging indicators. So there's, all this stuff happened. And right now it might seem like it's going in the wrong direction still, but at the same time, almost everything tends to work in, in cycles of, of up and down over different periods of time. So uh, what might be happening right now is this younger generation and, and what you've seen over the last few years is people becoming slightly more socially conservative. I think I, it's hard to get an entire, like it's, it's hard to really tell, but it seems like, they're starting to be a little bit of pushback towards this. And it kind of acts like a slingshot, you know, like it goes, it overcorrects too far and it comes back around. So I hope that that's what's happening with authoritarianism. And I hope that a younger generation that is seeing what has happened, they're seeing uh, the older kids have no opportunity, how, what their, the choices that they make don't lead towards um, what maybe they want out of life. But it requires a larger percentage of the younger people that are, are growing up to have the values like the, the values that they're trying to reach, like the ones taught by Jordan Peterson, like maybe not even values themselves, but the underlying reasons they have those values for those people that to then create something good. Um, I'm being a little wordy here, but what I'm getting at is that um, I think that, to know that we're on the right track and and this isn't anything that I think we have that much control over as individuals at, at a lower level, you know, all we can do is act the way that we think is the best and, and put that energy out into the people around us um, and talk about these issues like, we, like we're doing now and try to change the way that people interact with the world. And we'll know that we're on the right track. If the people that are younger are changing the way that they think and they're noticing, um, what is happening to our country and our culture um, as a result of all the things that are happening. And the, okay. So the other one, the other thing is economics. Um, have you heard of a guy called uh, Peter Zehan? No, I don't think so. <clears throat> so Peter Zehan, geopolitical analyst, um, he wrote a book about um he wrote a book about like a coming end to uh, globalism. And you can see this social unrest in a lot of places in Europe and in the United States uh, in response to globalism. And um, his idea is that as other countries reach the power of the United States, the United States power recedes. I would love to see a United States that kind of hangs out more in just the Western hemisphere. And I think it's necessary, <laughs> but um, economically, if global supply trains if um, if global economics ends and uh, trade routes become much more reasonable or regional, if trade mm -hmm. routes become much more regional, mm -hmm. then the culture will change as a result of that. And um, that, I think, is something that we might see. And what we're coming to is another banking collapse. And if what happens after this, if we get some sort of great depression now that comes out of this, then... I don't know what will happen afterwards, but 
it's going to be a uh, a huge change, and hopefully, it will be for the better. Okay, there's a lot there, and yeah, probably too much there. Sorry, no, it, yeah, it's fine. It, it's here's the thing, and I, I'm not doing. I'm not saying this as an insult to you. You're a smart dude, and I agree with almost everything you said there. Right. The problem is there's an underlying, there's an underlying issue that nobody wants to talk about from a libertarian standpoint. And the libertarians are so reluctant to have this conversation that it actually hurts the, their movement and their ability to move forward. I cannot wait to hear what you have to say. Honestly, I'm truly excited. When I talk to my friends that are my age and I ask them, why did you not have children? And they tell me, why would I want to bring children into a world this horrible? I respond to them. How do we change the world if we're not reproducing our own thought processes? You're giving control to other people. The simple answer of how you turn this all around, which we've already discussed, started in the 1800s. They didn't do this overnight. This has been Mm -hmm. going on for a long time. How do we reverse this? There's a saying, liberals don't have children. They have yours. They bring them into their indoctrination centers, their schools. They Mm -hmm. teach them their way of thinking. They set them off in the world, and you end up with drag queen story hour on every corner. How do you reverse that? You bring children into the world You teach them your principles, your philosophy, your ideals, and you reproduce yourself fivefold, sixfold, tenfold, and set them loose in the world to do the exact same thing. Mm. You take it all back. You take it all back by reproducing your thought pattern. How do you reproduce your thought pattern? You have children. You don't go grab some random kid off the street, shake him until he believes you. Right. Mm -hmm. You have your own children. You raise them and breed them to live out these principles in their own lives. And it spreads that way. You don't lead by talking people to death. You lead by example. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. I love that. I think you're totally right. And I want to do that myself. Yeah. No, I I wanted to touch on that, though, because it is is very it's almost taboo. In yeah. the libertarian space to have this conversation. Oh, not for me. No, it's no, no, like, no say, dude, yeah. go out and shit out as many kids as you can. Yeah. Because absolutely. that's who's going to carry on your legacy. Like, no matter how many thousands of people I reach by talking on my podcast, I do this podcast for my kids, not for anybody else. I've said it several times in my podcast. I started podcasting so that when I die, there's a record. My yeah. kids can go back and, and I was thinking about it the other day, it brought tears to my eyes, man. I was like, if, if I die, I, I know my, my uncle, I have two uncles that died in their forties from cancer mm-hmm. and there was nothing left of them for, for their wives. Yeah. I, I remember reading a story one time about, um, a man who died and his wife paid his cell phone bill every month so she could call his cell phone and hear his voice on his voicemail just so she could have that to cling on to. If I die, 
my wife has over 300 episodes of my yeah. conversations to go listen to. Yeah. What am I doing this? I don't do this for the audience, for the fame, for the glory, for the, I don't, I'm not, I'm interested in having conversations. I'm interested in having, if people wake up because of it, fine, but I don't do it to wake people up. I do it because I'm leaving something for my children, for my wife, for whoever, my grandkids behind me. They have that. that these are the conversations that my grandpa was interested in having. These are the converse, These are the topics he was talking about. All these books. I don't buy these books necessarily for myself. I could read all this stuff or listen to it online audiobook. I have it as a record. So if Fahrenheit 451 comes true and books are being banned, there is somewhere for my children to find a library of all kinds of different thoughts, mm-hmm. right? And ideas. And, and there's that there. Like I'm speaking to generations beyond generations through what I'm doing. And it's for my lineage. And I'm very much focused on my five children. What am I leaving to them? What am I doing for them? What have they learned from me? How are they moving forward in the world? And mm-hmm. what what is it that I have taught them? And how is that spreading? And it's going to spread through the genes. It's going to spread through the lineage. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. 100%. Seriously, I love that. I've, I've not thought about it in that way at all. Um, obviously I want kids, uh, but yeah, that, that's incredible. I love that. Sweet. But I also like your theories and, and talking about supply chain. It's, it's, this is valuable stuff to talk about. Like the way the supply chain breaks down, like how this works, how it should be brought in more regional and not be Mm -hmm. dependent on outside trade sources, the government making these trade deals with foreign countries. I agree with all of that, but I think that, that where the one person, where the individual can stop feeling so hopeless in moving forward is by passing on the wisdom acquired during life from one generation to the next. Yeah, seriously. Um, Yeah. And I think there are more ways to do it than just, you know, having kids. I think that having kids is probably the best way to do it. But like, I remember, um, uh, one of my one of my favorite like spiritual writers is a uh, deceased now, but a few years ago he he passed away. Uh, Thich Nhat On, who's a he's a Vietnamese uh, Buddhist priest, and in one of his books, I forget which one, I've read several. Um, he talks about like how his students uh, in his his student like he has no children of his own, but his students that he teaches in his monastery. They are his um, spiritual, like spiritual descendants because they they've learned what he said. And he says, like what you said, is that all of the things I've written and um, the audio, because I was listening to it on an audio book, um, will will be remembered. And while I, I have died a certain death, I will still live on in the spirituality or in in the um, in a spiritual essence with his spiritual descendants and, and people he's <clears> touched with his books. And of course, that's a much more like the things that I've learned from Tick Not On are, are much more positive by any objective metric than what they're teaching in, in public schools. But um, 
yeah, similar idea of. But you uh, have to look at the public there. school, the structure of the public school, the institutionalization of mm-hmm. bringing the children in, making them the state's children, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah. They're less and less connected to the parent. You have to look that at that from the same point of view that he's speaking. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're, that's what I'm saying. He, yeah, yeah. The state is creating disciples yeah. through public education. Absolutely. And they trap the generations into it because then they make you, then they make you helpless. They make mm-hmm. you like, I can't teach my children. Like then you get these, like we were talking about earlier, you get these ideas. Well, you don't like public education. Do you not want to educate children? Well, no. Like what parent in their right mind would not educate their child? Yeah. Right. If they had no choice, if the, if the education system weren't there, do you think prior to public education, the parents were not teaching children? Yeah, seriously. But it's, it's, you know, they have, when they talk about education, they have a one track mind about what education is because they've been taught through the social constructs, the, the public schools, that this is how education looks. Mm. And they're, they're taught that, if the schooling, if the education that the kids are receiving is not, doesn't look like this, then, um, then it's not good education. And, uh, an example that I, I, I'd love to talk about here. I know I've, I've talked about indigenous native American stuff, um, a few times. That's, that's one of the things I'm most passionate about. Um, this is a, a, one thing that I like to look at is, um, I, I don't know how much you know about the, uh, uh, Indian Removal Act and and uh, prior to that, like Native Americans and First Nations people in Canada and Aboriginal Australians in Australia about them being taken from their parents mm-hmm. and forcibly assimilated into um, like Euro, like American culture at the time. Right. I've heard of up it, but I don't know a lot about it. Yeah. Yeah. So basically what, what's happening is that the, the government of these places, um, they decide the standards that raising children takes. And of course they, they're the ones that create these standards and they're creating them from their own culture. They're, they're creating what standards they decide that a child is being taken care of, um, through their own culture. So when, when you apply it from like American culture versus native Americans who were, who were at this time, a lot of them living more traditional lives, what ends up happening is at a much higher disproportionate rate, these Native American children were be taking, being taken forcibly from their parents and brought to these boarding schools where there was physical sexual abuse, tons of horrible things going on. But at the same time, of course, it also applies, and it you can kind of draw comparisons to today, it also applies to, you know, Americans like us or any Americans or anybody that might have values that are outside of the, the government system. Mm. You know, so for for Native Americans and for First Nations people and for Indigenous Australians, it was like very obvious. But from from that, like the key there is that the values that the government laid down from the top down, they're deciding this is what education looks like. It's it's informed based on how they live, based on their their modern life. So anybody that deviates outside of that, they can decide that they're not doing their job. They're not being taken care of in the right way. And that is explicitly authoritarian because it's deciding the values for someone else that they should hold. And it means 
that when parents are not taking care of their kids, you know, there are certain cases where parents are really not taking care of their kids. Mm. But a lot of times it's just culturally informed nonsense where they're deciding that because they don't fit into the mold of what we view as acceptable, then it's then they're they're not being taught, which isn't true. It's just like yeah. like parents nowadays we 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 hear more and more about parents having their kids at least the threat of having their kids taken away or being in prison because they refuse to call their kids by other genders or have surgeries done to their kids that can't be reversed. Yeah. It's horrifying. And it it reminds me of um of Indian removal. It reminds mm-hmm. me of that. And it's 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 scary. It's it truly truly scary. And it's why I don't want my kids in in public school ever. I mean, I don't have kids yet, but for when I have kids, they're they're not going to public school because that gives the state a chance to grab them. Mm. And rip them i either metaphorically or physically right right yeah yeah it's it's and that's why i named this this episode the the trap of public education yeah it really is it is because once they get the once they get one generation in there Mm -hmm. the goal is to indoctrinate that generation to send the next generation of course and and so on yeah and we've hit like this this point now because of what happened with COVID because parents were being like their eyes were being open to what the education system was doing and was teaching that there's, there's a fighting chance to get yeah. these kids out of here to rescue Absolutely. some minds from the pollution that, that these, the education system is is putting into their brains yeah but i mean it's not a hundred percent you're not going to a hundred percent agree with the way that people raise their children it's Mm -hmm. just not the way it is but it's probably a much better system to allow for parents to decide how the children are raised than it is for the state to decide absolutely yeah and uh, you know, it, I, people. If you give people options, they will make the best option for themselves. And if you allow people, like I, I've heard arguments because I, I I get in these arguments with people on on Twitter and stuff, trying to make sense of it. And um, oh, don't do that. Don't no, I mean I, I I do it. Like I'm on I'm on Twitter to promote my podcast, so right. that's why I'm there. I'm not like out there like having flame wars. I, I you know I comment where it's necessary in like a regimented fashion. Like I. Yeah. Trust me, it's it's all very in, in, it's involved with promoting my podcast. But, um, you know, they have this idea that um, oh god, I forgot what I was going to say. Um, I have a I have a tendency to distract people. I'm sorry. No, that's uh, all right. Yeah, no, there's, you know, there there's kind of this idea amongst people nowadays that they have to get back at the state and there there's this feeling and I kind of, I, and I, I sympathize. Yeah. Right. There's, there's this feeling that you've been doing this to us, our parents, our children for hundreds of years. We are going to take over these institutions and we're going to do it back to you. 
I think if you go too far in either direction, you're no better than the other direction. Yeah. Right. It's like the old saying two wrongs don't make a right type deal. Right. And, and I think that it's, it's very tempting to want vengeance and revenge when you're awakened to the, to the issues, especially when you see the degeneracy that's being pushed down children's throats and, some of it borders on child abuse in a sexual nature. Yeah. It really, it, does. I mean, it, 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 it's very it more hard. Borders, it really yeah. It, it's very difficult not to just go full wood chipper, you know? Yeah. It really no, I, is. Yeah. yeah. And there, there's this instinct to protect children mm-hmm. and there, but, but there's, you got to balance it because you don't want to teach the next generation to be vengeful. Right. Right. And, and ultimately like, you know, in any situation, I think the best people say like the best revenge is living a happy and fulfilled life. You know, if, if you spend your energy on trying to destroy something else in a way that doesn't, you know, support your own thing, then you're putting your energy in in the wrong spot, you know, Uh, criticized by creating is, is what I like to say. And, And, you know, if if you're in a situation where you feel trapped, like there's ways to that you can put as much energy as you possibly can towards getting yourself at least out of that situation, getting your own family out of that situation and doing something like whether it be making a podcast or creating homeschooling community, pushing for uh, school choice. So uh, parents who are just not just the super rich can send their kids where they want to go to school, but also people who are, if they did, weren't having the money taken out in taxes, could support to educate their, could afford to educate their kids in the way they wanted to. But with with vouchers that allow parents to spend the money at someplace other than uh, public schools, that allows parents to decide for their own children individually where they should be educated. And personally, I would love to live in a society where, where parents who are most likely to make the right decision for their kid, I'm not like, I'm not budging on that. I'm going to say that in the vast majority of cases, that's what's going to happen. Parents have a clear incentive to do what's best for their child. They're going to put them in a place that helps them out the most. And, right. you know, uh, some people don't want like that. People will complain about public funds being used for religious institutions because communities like Hasidic Jews want to send their kids to private Hasidic Jewish schools. And like, if you're a Hasidic Jew or you're an Orthodox or you're a Catholic and you want your children to go to one of those religious schools, like absolutely public funds should be allowed to to be spent for that because public funds are just taxpayer funds. Even just calling them public funds implies that they belong to the government, but they're supposed to belong to the taxpayer and they're supposed to belong to the society as a whole. But public schools do not serve society as a whole they serve the teachers union and they serve the people that fund them um and they serve the uh the teachers who have been taught in uh through institutions that were created and funded with all this money from the rockefellers and the carnegies so it's um yeah parents will make the best choice for their kids it's not just religious schools it could be a charter school it could be some sort of, it could be homeschooling. It could be any of these different programs, especially today when there's so many online programs where, you know, kids can then spend time traveling or being outside or doing any sorts of things and probably be learning more efficiently. 
because school sitting down, like it's never the most efficient. There's so much downtime. Kids are sitting there. They're screwing around. They're not like you could probably teach a kid on your own in about two and a half hours what they get taught in eight hours of school. You could get that shit done in the morning and then in the afternoon you could go mount TVs with Geek Squad or something. Do mm-hmm. learn something real. Yeah. Go cut down a tree. Go do something that matters. Do something that makes you feel good. Experience more things. Like experience more things and figure out what you like. Like those kids that you were discussing earlier that are going on these ride alongs. Mm. You know? God. Well, and and what people have to understand when it comes to this, like spirit of vengeance again i understand where you're coming from i i i I don't i don't i'm not against you on on a personal level but i think what people need to realize is whatever occupies your mind enslaves you and if you are if your mind is occupied with revenge or bitterness or hate towards a group, that group has enslaved you. Yeah. And so your, your bet, your best bet is focusing on what little you can do on an individual level and not worried so much about the macro level. Yeah. Like if every individual did what they could do to better their own lives and the lives of their own children and their immediate influence circle, then on a macro level, it would take care of itself. Absolutely. It would. Yeah. Yeah. That's where that slogan, which I think, you know, sometimes used in ways that I don't like, but I really love the slogan, like think globally, act locally. And I don't think about it. Think local, think globally as like, like a lot of people who are definitely in line with globalism, which I'm completely opposed to say think globally. But when I say think globally, I'm thinking more about globally metaphorically as in like, think about the bigger picture. Yeah. Um, but act locally, you know? Yeah. 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 Well, the only thing that the unfortunate reality of the situation, and I always say this kind of tongue in cheek, but I mean it mm-hmm. it's, it's un- the unfortunate thing is you can only control yourself. The fortunate thing yeah. is you can only control yourself. Yeah. So, I mean, un- uh, it's and, and what I mean by that, a lot of people kind of laugh at it because I say it, but it's unfortunate because you see what's happening and you can see like, let's just take the, the, the war in Ukraine. You can see it and you're like, man, I wish I could do something about that, but you can't. No, All you can control can't. is yourself and it sucks. And you don't like it, but you can rest easy and live with less stress. If you become aware and accept all you can control is you just do what you can do. Seriously. Yeah. A hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. You want, you got somewhere else you want to go? You mean with, with the conversation? Yeah. Yeah. I got a couple more quotes. Let's go for it. Let's go Uh, for it. 
I'm not going to keep you too, 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 too much longer. It's a little, over, we're over an hour now, but yeah, your episodes are, I, I listen to a few of your episodes. They're usually about an hour and a half, right? Usually about an hour. Sometimes they go hour and a half, sometimes two hours. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm not, I'm, I'm pretty flexible. I'm just kind of like, eh, let's see what happens. Yeah. So I know, I think we've had a great conversation. Um, then, you know, actually if, if you want to put a pin in it, I got, I got a great, uh, a pretty long quote here that I think is written pretty well. This is, go for it. Yeah. So 1970. Um, a guy named Alvin Toffler, he wrote this book um, called oh, Future Oh, God. Shock. Yeah, Future Shock. <laughs> so, like, you know, we talked about education today. We talked about, you know, like the cultural impact of education. Um, so this is what I'm going to leave you with. And this is somebody in 1970 who at the end of, um, like, all this stuff had really been changed already. So it's 1970. And he writes this. Uh, mass, mass education was the ingenious machine constructed by industrialism to produce the kind of adults it needed. The problem was inordinately complex. How to pre-adapt children for a new world, a world of repetitive, uh, excuse me, sorry, stigmatism, a world of repetitive indoor toil, smoke and noise, machines, crowded living conditions, collective discipline, a world in which time was to be regulated not by the cycle of the sun and moon, but by the factory whistle in the clock. The solution was an educational system that in its very structure simulated this new world. This system did not emerge instantly. Even today, it retains throwback elements from pre-industrial society. Yet the whole idea of assembling masses of students, raw material, to be processed by teachers, workers, in a centrally located school, factory, was a stroke of industrial genius. The whole administrative hierarchy of education, as it grew up, followed the model of industrial bureaucracy. The very organization of knowledge into permanent disciplines was grounded on industrial assumptions. Children marched from place to place and sat in assigned stations. Bells rang to announce changes of time. The inner life of the school thus became an anticipatory mirror, a perfect introduction to industrial society. The most criticized features of education today the regimentation, lack of individualization, the rigid systems of seating, grouping, grading, and marking, the authoritarian role of the teacher are precisely those that made mass public education so effective an instrument of adaption for its place and time. And that is the system we still have today. And that book is one of those ones that once you read it, you're like, is this guy writing fiction or nonfiction? <laughs> my buddy, uh, my buddy Coop told me about that book. I'd never heard of Alvin Toffler before. Mm -hmm. And I told him I was, uh, I'm going to read the fourth turning. Uh, you want to do a podcast on it? And he goes, don't read the fourth turning without reading future shock first. He said, read the fourth turning in the, the environment of future shock. It comes from the same place. So you read future shock to prepare you for the fourth turning, because then you will see how our society is reacting in, in, in the turning. Okay. So if you want an interesting project, read the, you read future shock okay. again, because obviously you've read it. I, but, I haven't read the whole thing, but read it and then read the fourth turning from that framing. Okay. Okay, I got that written down. And and that'll that's one of those things that it took one of my 
friends who's almost damn near literally a hermit to to tell me and I went oh Jesus like it's yeah it it's it it makes you look at transhumanism and AI in a completely different way. Oh God. That stuff scares the crap out of me. Oh, man. Man. It's like terrifying. Crazy. Absolutely terrifying. Um, but okay. Hey, I want yeah. you to plug whatever you want to plug. Yeah. Anytime you want to come on again and you have a subject you want to chat about, get in touch with me. We'll do this again, man. I enjoyed this thoroughly. This was a great conversation. Me too. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Illegitimate Scholar, mostly a podcast. You can find me on Illegitimate Scholar on Spotify, Apple. Um, I'll send Tommy my uh, my links if he'd be nice enough to put them in the description Absolutely. to link everybody to it. Um, but yeah, any any podcast platform, Illegitimate Scholar. It's uh, audio forward, but I also put it on YouTube and I make like some dumb shorts on YouTube and stuff like that. Um, again, Illegitimate Scholar, Ill underscore Scholar on Twitter. And uh, yeah. Yeah, and, that's I, it. and I like, and I like, uh, his content. He keeps it probably under 30 minutes, typically almost and, always uh, animated as hell. And he's not afraid to throw out a four letter word, which keeps things colorful. So I, I, I really like what you're doing, man. I like your content. You're doing some good work. Um, so just keep yeah. it up, man. Really appreciate it, man. Absolutely. I, yeah. I feel the same way about yeah. yours. No doubt. I'll definitely put some links in here and, uh, we'll, we'll get people sent your way. And, uh, yeah. Anytime you want to come back on, you got a subject. You're like, Hey, I want to, I want to roll through the subject and we can, we can chat whether record online or offline, whatever, man, I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm available. So absolutely. It sounds good. I'll definitely come on again. Once I got something that I think you like. All right, brother. Well, I'm going right. to end the recording right here. Okay.